Welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kreider, and today I'm going to be talking about the Thunder's lottery shift. They now have two lottery picks. Bit late on it, but they have it. So I'm going to be talking about kind of how they came to that point, why it's pretty crucial, and kind of how that sets them up going into draft lottery nights. And then I want to talk about the NBA awards, kind of like the finalist setup here. I'll be talking Josh Giddy, kind of his status on where he might lie on the spectrum, and kind of my predictions for the major awards that will be uh, kind of divvied out over the next couple of weeks. And to round it all out, guys, I have a very special offer from my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook, so you do not want to miss out on that. But guys, starting things out, my apologies for not getting a pod out the next or the last about two, three days. I was dealing with a family matter, so you know I was kind of out of the picture for a little bit, but we are back, and there is a lot of content to talk about. Last time I spoke with you all, the first set of play-in games had been concluded. The Minnesota Timberwolves took the LA Clippers. Patrick Beverly was throwing his shirt like he was Kevin Garnett. And someone glued their hand to the hardwood. And then on the other side, we saw the Pelicans route the San Antonio Spurs to kind of set up uh, what I'm going to be talking about today and that play-in scenario. And then also, uh, we got to see... Actually, yesterday, Sam Presti answered some exit interview questions, and I really wanted to get that out for today's episode. I think I should probably uh, get this stuff out first, though, so look out the next day or so for the Sam Presti drop. I'm trying to put a lot more effort into this because this was over two hours of coverage, and a lot of what we saw, at least uh, what we've seen publicized I think has not even scratched the surface of what we heard from Sam Presti. There were so many good tidbits. I listened through basically all of it. I was actually trying to transcribe the entire thing. You know, I'm kind of dumb, so I forgot that, you know, the Thunder have an entire media team in place to kind of get the transcription out. But I was there for like three hours just analyzing basically every word. I had to to retype it. So, um There's a lot to cover, and I want to make sure that I really go into detail to give you guys the full-on picture, as opposed to, you know, just some fun quotes that Presti might have thrown out there. But first, we got to cover probably the Thunder's biggest game of the season, and they did not even play in it. You know, I kind of discussed this one as like game 83 almost for the Thunder. They got knocked out last Sunday, lost by 50 points to the Clippers, but they were still really involved in the lottery race that we saw a few days ago. Now, as everybody kind of already knows, the LA Clippers, they traded a ton of picks OKC's way a couple of seasons ago. This is where Danilo and SGA got moved. Five first round picks, three unprotecteds and two swaps went to OKC. And the first one started this year. And obviously they got Paul George and got Kawhi Leonard as well. But you know, they were expected to be the 15th pick going into the play-in series. They were 8th in the Western Conference, had a 42-40 and 40 record, and barring two consecutive losses, they were going to stay there, and OKC was going to be landlocked to pick number 15. But due to them losing to the Timberwolves, they were set up in a really crucial match against the Pelicans. So, 
If you're on the Thunder's boat, you're rooting for the Pelicans any day of the week. You got Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum. Jonas Valanciunas is there at the five. Like on the surface, that's a pretty star-studded lineup. And Brandon Ingram, you know, he was a hell of a player in the first game that the Pelicans had to kind of compete in. But you go into it, and if OKC or if the Pelicans win, OKC gets the projected 12th pick in the draft. If it goes in the Clippers' direction, OKC stays at 15. And there's a few other ripples. Portland gets like the 12th best odds off the Pelicans. It gets a bit interesting, but that's kind of the basics you need to know. And this game was just about as storybook as it gets. Imagine for a Thunder fan, you know, And if you're part of the tank, you're actively rooting for the Thunder to get right to the victory, but then maybe falter by a point or two. You know, you get good experience in for your guys, but you ultimately lose. So you want the close games, but you don't want the victories. This is the complete opposite. You want the Pelicans to just dismantle the Clippers. And this was like the first game that everyone, no matter where you fall on the tank scale, is rooting for somebody to win, which is you know, pretty awesome. And, you know, it kind of tells you like where everyone has kind of been in terms of mindset here. So everybody had an active goal in mind. And to open the game, the Pelicans had a blessing. You had Paul George out with COVID, Luke Kennard out with COVID. So you got the guys basically rallying around Reggie Jackson, Terrence Mann, Nick Batum, just players of of those caliber, but you know, they've been playing that way all year. Anyways, though, hop into play and the Timberwolves, or excuse me, the Pelicans just get on like a major run. We're talking second quarter. They're looking to blow this one out the gate. They're up 10 points, up to 15 at some segments. And it was all because they were force feeding the crap out of Brandon Ingram. And for the Clippers, that was a nightmare scenario. If you don't have Paul George, you're now running lineups where you really just cannot match up with him. You know, the way that Ingram is built, it's basically a seven-foot shot creator. And kind of that turnaround mid-range, specifically around the baseline, gets very tough if it's just a one-on-one coverage. And yes, they have Robert Covington, but he's not the most athletic guy and that can lead to some major exploitation. So that's exactly what the Pels leaned on. They had this monumental second quarter lead by the end of halftime. You kind of started to see that dwindle a little bit, but for the most part, they were wire to wire leading this first half. I think they closed up 10 points. Then it got dangerous. Third quarter comes around And you start to see Ingram getting double teamed. Now, you'd think with someone like CJ McCollum on your roster, even Jonas Valanciunas, they'd be able to source some other offense. Nope, not at all. They shot 27% in the third quarter. I think they were at a point where they like had two points and maybe six or seven minutes into the frame. And LA was just rolling around them. I think it was a 20 to 2 third quarter run. It put them up 13 points and they looked damn near unstoppable. Anything they were looking at was falling for them. They shot 11 of 16. I think they were probably like 8 of 10 to begin this, but basically they outscored them by 20 points. It was 38 to 18 
for the Clips. And it was an uphill battle going into the fourth. I was listening to Down the Dunk. They had their little segment on this. And, you know, they're saying, I think Al, like, literally turned the TV off because of everything going on. That doesn't happen typically with the uh, with the Thunder coverages, right? But, you know, that's how invested this was. Everyone was really honed in on the Pels winning it. And in the fourth, you saw them return to the promised land. Brandon Ingram was not getting double teamed to open the fourth. Just like the first quarter, what are they going to do? They're going to feed him. He's going to rise up and he's going to start knocking down some shots. Jose Alvarado tiny he's like six feet tall I don't even know if he's gonna clock in at six feet if you remeasure him but he's fast and off of inbound passes the guy like lurks in the backcourt tries sneaking up to get some steals they were prepared for it but his disruption was still very much there and it led to just a lot of craziness for the clips to begin play so they're bricking basically shot after shot complete swap here where now the Pelicans are just going crazy. You have Ingram hitting his jumper. CJ McCollum is feeling it from downtown. And it looks like you had a really good game on your hands. So they cut it down inside five, about six, seven minutes remaining. And then the Pelicans retook the lead with four minutes to go. They never looked back and they won the game 105 to 101. Ingram drops 30, McCollum drops 19, and OKC gets that 12th lottery pick, projected 12th lottery pick. And the icing on the cake, the Trailblazers, who have seemingly been riding the Thunder's coattails in terms of team aspirations, is out of what would have been their second lottery pick. So it's sweet on both ends here. For OKC, they had... Probably the worst break of it all. Last year, they had a 48% chance of getting the number five pick from Houston. Ended up seeing the Houston take Jalen Green and them get the sixth pick. That was a really tough draw. Now they get something else to play with on lottery night, and it can get very, very intriguing. So I'm going to be talking about the odds and kind of how that 12th pick impacts everything in one second here. But first... I want to let you guys know about a very special offer going on with my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. The NBA playoffs means next level basketball. Get in on the first round action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets instantly. You win no matter what. All DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on NBA hoops with same game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. Plus, each day of the first round, get a risk-free bet up to $10 if your same game parlay doesn't hit. Here's what you have to do for the offer. Go ahead and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game during the first round of the playoffs and get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner 
of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Kind of pivoting back onto this draft pick though, man. You load up Tankathon, and if you loaded it up maybe three days ago, you would have seen, you know, you're seeing number one and number two going to the OKC Thunder. Now, Tyler Carroll broke it down. He did an amazing job last year, kind of jotting down the numbers on like pick scenarios and all that. I think if I remember correctly, it's like a 0.5% chance of getting picks number one and two together. So you got to get really lucky. Out of 200 times, you're only pulling that scenario once. It's still a chance though. And that means that like right after the game, everyone on Twitter was just doing that. Tankathon just filled out the feed. Probably the same for you guys. And I think it's pretty funny how that ends up working. But yeah, now you just get a lot more versatility, not just in the sense of obtaining two top four picks and just having two lottery picks in general, but you can really make some nice pairings here. When you look at things on the surface level, this number 12 pick in all likelihood is going to stay at pick number 12. There's a 7.1% chance of this pick moving into the top four. And out of that 1.5% of the time, it's pick number one. 1.7% 1.7% for two, 1.9% for, uh, for three, and 2.1% for four. 86.1% chance at 12, and then the other 6.8% are for 13 or 14, and it's really just probably going to land at, at 12. Who are we kidding? But there's always that chance. You think of just those altering jumps in the last five or so years in the draft lottery the biggest one comes from the memphis grizzlies now they've been staying afloat uh, for a while now were they an amazing team after like the junkyard dog days not really i mean they still had some pieces obviously but they were never really at the bottom then they walk in with the eighth best lottery odds get pick number two and select john morant Now, they're number two in the Western Conference, and a lot of people were taking them to go very far in the playoffs. This is a really trendy team, a really young team, and they basically got to where they are through this draw, right? Like, they've had amazing selections as well. Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bain, those two kind of come to mind for me. But, you know, this wouldn't have happened without the lotto, and it kind of just lets you know, like, anything can really happen here. Even last year, you look at a team like the Toronto Raptors. They weren't supposed to be in the top four. They end up at number four, and they got potentially the rookie of the year and Scotty Barnes, and they're right back in playoff contention. 12th doesn't have a lot of growth, but there's definitely still some some movement in those growth plates. Like you can still jump up, and for OKC, It doesn't matter which picks in the top four. They just want one, man. You look at the breakdown of the lottery. The current construction is you have a solidified top four. You have Chet, you have Paolo, you have Jabari, and you have Jaden. And then there's another break where you get into the Shaden Sharps and stuff like that. You want one of those picks. And ideally, it's the Clippers one. Because then you get that and you're insured that the OKC pick is going to fall somewhere in the top eight. Let's just say, though, for example, it's going to be picks number 6 and 12 again 
for the Oklahoma City Thunder. This is another break where you're outside of that elite group again after not being successful, uh, at least in the win-loss column, but you have a, uh, a unique draft board. And Presti talked about it. He said he kind of likes this draft class, so 12, still pretty good. Six is definitely going to be good for him. First thing is obviously that chance to jump up in the top four. Let's just say it doesn't happen though. And now you're looking at uh, what that draft pool looks like. For six, tack on whoever you want, right? But going into number 12, that draft pool has expanded like extremely. You know, you talk about 15 to 12. Well, it's just three picks. It's just three players going off the board. That is big time. You look at some of the latest drafts and what we've seen in the back end of the lottery there's always those hidden gems and they're not even hidden they're gems in plain sight that for one reason or another teams just do not want to select the biggest one that comes to mind is Tyrese Halliburton from two years ago he was a projected top six pick in most people's eyes big boards had him as that top eight pick one of the better point guards and he slid all the way to pick number 13 or excuse me, pick number 12 for Sacramento. That's a really good pickup there. And Halliburton just got traded for Sabonis and people are very upset about it. They think that the Kings just got completely gypped because there's a lot of potential in that guy. He's not falling to 15 in a draft class. You know, there was that status of him being a, a guy falling down the big board, but the talent was there. And it's kind of how it works everywhere. Now, this isn't one as obvious as Halliburton, but Tyler Hero, he was the 13th pick. Michael Porter Jr., he was the 14th pick by the Nuggets. This might be my favorite example because he was deemed a top three pick and probably the number one pick like two years before even joining Missouri. You know, you heard a ton about MPJ and how he was going to be that guy. He has injury troubles. And everyone's just not taking the chance on him. Denver gets to the board. They have that structured team already. And they have this you know, pick to throw someone out on. They take MPJ. And even though he's still getting hurt, he is a very good player. You don't find that value outside the lottery. And really, you never find the value at pick number 14 for a guy of his caliber. Donovan Mitchell's there too at 13. Devin Booker, he was the 13th pick, and obviously Campaign was the subsequent pick by the Thunder that year. They wanted Devin Booker, and then you got someone like Giannis, too, where he's at pick number 15, and, you know, he could have been available at 12, goes to 15, but it lets you know that there's still that reach um, in those drafts to go after potential. Giannis clearly had the biggest potential out of that draft class. And for a team like the Thunder, they're going to be looking to kind of tap into potential. They want to find those big hitters. They're not looking for the quick replacements. Sam Presti talked about that yesterday. And if there's a Giannis at pick number 12, I'm sure the Thunder would take that over probably Steven Adams like they did, uh, you know, back in 2013. Like Steven was that fill-in at the center. They needed one and that was just the right fit. Yeah. But, you know, people expected Giannis to maybe be there for the Thunder, uh, that they would take him. I think now OKC is looking to go after those big-time prospects. So, 
that changes the mindset here, and I think it makes a player like Giannis or just a player with a high ceiling a lot more in range for OKC, and I don't even think they have a set range. They picked Josh Giddy at number six when you had James Booknight and Jonathan Kaminga right there. Kaminga, you know, he is the next pick, but what about Booknight? He's kind of another player that falls into this category where he was supposed to go top eight, and then he falls to pick number 11. Now, he hasn't played well this year. I think part of that is due to the Hornets not really utilizing him correctly. They've just sent him to the G League, this and that. But the premise is there. Like, the, the main story is that's a guy that, you know, was heavily slept on come draft day. He was supposed to go a lot higher, and you're able to kind of snag somebody that might fit you uh, fairly fairly well. In this draft, I think there's a lot of players like that too where they could slide down. Jalen Duran is the main one that sticks out for Memphis. OKC could use that athletic type of center. They've been looking for one for the last two years, really haven't had one, and they haven't used the draft before one yet. Jalen can help there. Dyson Daniels from the G League Ignite. Many think he's a mid-first round pick. I truthfully don't believe that. I think that his stock is going to rise before the draft. Six foot seven point guard. You could even say he's six foot eight, but he has a very good gauge on passing. It's an intriguing fit with the Thunder. I don't really know if it works, but I think he has the ceiling you'd like. Same goes with Jalen Hardy. He's been falling off um, a little bit on boards, but Jaden, you know, he has that shot creation ability. Maybe he's a bit redundant next to Trey but that's always a, an idea you can go after. And even someone like Jeremy Sohan. And I'll be going more into these lottery players over the next couple of weeks. If you guys tuned into my coverage last year, I went into like 40-minute deep dives on a lot of those top-tier prospects. Even the ones that were out of OKC's range. The Cunninghams, the Jalen Greens. Clearly, they're not going to be there at six, but it's worth talking about them. I got you guys covered on that. Uh, and that should be coming out fairly soon. But outside of just the expanded pool, the trade-up options have just improved significantly as well. Now we go to this idea where they get pick number six and pick number 12. That's a major jump from having six and 15. And from 15 to 12, you're going to have to give up some sort of asset, especially if there's a guy in plain sight like there has been the last couple of drafts with the presumptive top four that package of six and 12 is so much sweeter than let's say six and 15 we can throw out potential names on who could uh, get in the top four and sneak in let's say that it's a team kind of on the cusp of breaking into playoff contention yet again let's say san antonio for example you know they could use a couple different players let's call it how it is i think if you're really going to hone in on it ideally they would want someone at the three or four let's say they end up at number four you'd think that Jaden ivy is going to be your top pick there that's the last one on the board but you know, the Spurs, they've kind of tapped into a lot of these guards. They got Joshua Primo, Devin Vassell, Lonnie Walker, if he gets paid. Lots of guys are in that sort of area. If they are still intrigued or they have someone in mind, such as, let's say, Shaden Sharp or like a Keegan Murray, you know, moving down two spots 
could really help them out. And for the Thunder, if they're really sold on what Ivy brings to the table or what Apollo or you know Jabari Smith could bring, you can make that deal and both sides are kind of helped out here. Got to remember, OKC has four real bullets in the chamber. They have these two lottery picks, pick number 30 and pick number 34. So you can make those packages and that's not even going into their future draft equity. That makes it a very... Uh, a very good hypothetical on how high you can reach up in the board. And even without whatever their number one pick is going to be, pick number 12 plus a future first round pick can get you up into the top 10, for example, where I think if you were throwing out 15 and another pick, it could get you up there, but it'd have to be a very sweet first rounder in the past. I think a really good example is a Sangoon trade. They traded 16 out for two future firsts that are protected. You don't find that value often. I don't think you find that type of value in this draft class. Sengun was deemed a lottery pick until he clearly fell out of it, right? 12 might get you some more assets that way as well. But that's just how I view it. Really good stuff that the Pelicans were able to kind of push away the Clippers. When they're healthy, they're going to be in the playoffs. So this might have been their best pick they got out of it. And you think about it, man, the Cleveland Cavaliers got Kyrie off of a Clippers pick 10 years ago. I had a 2.8% chance of landing one. They got there and they got their guy. Maybe, just maybe history repeats itself. And it's going to make next month very exciting whenever we get to see the picks unveiled. But I want to talk about the awards in place this season. Some of them have already been announced. Uh, but I want to talk about them and kind of just my predictions on what we are going to see. And we'll start with the MVP award. Finalists have been pushed out there. Top three for every category. It's Joel Embiid, it's Nikola Jokic, and it's Giannis Adentacumpo. I think the top two are locked in between Embiid and Jokic. I'm going to say Jokic wins it off of the regular season. Only guy in that 2,000 point, 1,000 rebound, and 500 assist club in a regular season. And he was really carrying uh, the Nuggets. Now, he has looked not amazing in this playoff series against the Warriors. No one on the Nuggets has looked good. You know, they were dysfunctional almost in game two. Will Barton and DeMarcus Cousins were still going at it. Even in the post game. Will Barton was clearly pissed at Boogie for whatever was going on. Jokic has still been putting out really good outputs. It's just a matter of, you know, is he able to step out to the three and help you defend that way? Offensively, he's kind of just that generator for them. And when you want to compare Jokic versus Embiid, you can make cases for either. I think it obviously uh, does have to lean a little bit more towards Jokic. Averaging 27.8 rebounds and, or excuse me, 14 rebounds and almost eight assists per game. Embiid has just as strong of a, a case, right? Like, I could definitely see him being up there because dude's averaging 30.6 per game to go along with 12 rebounds. I think that all-around ability, though, of Jokic and just those numbers have pushed him a little bit above. And we've started to see some ballots on who's going to win. Looks like it's going Jokic's way. So that's why I'm tossing him out. Obviously, there's a lot of different people you can pick out, like Giannis, monster year again, averaging 30 and 12, and then you go a little bit further down the board, like Chris Paul, he's seen as a top five candidate. 
He's only averaging 15 points and 11 assists, but the Suns are 64 and 18 for a reason. Got to credit a lot of that to Chris and even Devin Booker, who's put in a lot of work this year. Next up, though, I'm going to be talking the Defensive Player of the Year. We already know who won. Marcus Smart of the Boston Celtics. I'm not one who's been diving in heavily on the defensive stats this year. I know a lot of people are upset that it didn't go to Mikhail Bridges. It was a tightly um, contested contest, right? But Smart ends up winning it. First guard uh, to win the award in a good amount of years. And for someone who's been covering Oklahoma State this year, it's cool to see Marcus Smart back in NBA circles. And for Smart, you know, he gets picked sixth by the Celtics back in 2014. I really didn't know what the expectations were. Like with OSU, two great seasons with them. Sophomore campaign, he had that like ordeal at Texas Tech, but he was a very athletic guy. You know, you're talking someone who's going to penetrate to the basket as a playmaker. He's pretty good. A lot of it came down to a shot just not falling. And for the Celtics, he never really grew into like that star caliber player, but he's always been very, very valuable. And I'd say for that draft class, he definitely met, you know, what you wanted. Like Dante Exum was the pick right before him, just to give like an example. You know, he's obviously better than Dante Exum. And for the Celtics, they needed that defender. Smart has stepped up and he's going to be big time going into the playoff series with Brooklyn that already was crazy in game number one but for Bridges you know that's one where I would be happy if he ended up winning it too Gobert is always in the conversation it's just how it goes Uh, if he won again it's just it's another one of those things where it's like yeah just add to the collection it's basically his award to take uh, almost every single year at this point rookie of the year you got Evan Mobley Scotty Barnes and Cade Cunningham Josh Giddy's outside of the list. Makes sense. I mean, he was gone the last two months of the year, really. Didn't play post-All-Star break outside of one game. So it moves him off the board. I think the highest he probably would have gotten would have been fourth anyways, just due to Barnes and Mobley staying consistent and then Cade just having his late rise. This is one where he's the presumptive underdog, but I'll go ahead and say that Scotty Barnes ends up taking this one. It's a three-headed race. Um, I think that just because the Raptors were very successful this year, that elevates Barnes a little bit. And he deserves it. He averaged 15.3 points per game and 7.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists to go along with it. And he shot 30% from three. Barnes, that was his one weak point, the jumper. 30% is low, but it's not terrible. And, you know, he, he was a big big player for the Raps. Same goes for Mobley. He was the one kind of pushing everybody off for the majority of the season. And, you know, that's the reason why he's expected to win this thing. I'm just going to say, though, that Barnes slightly edges him out here, and we'll go with that. I mean, for Mobley, still very dominant this season, averaged 15 points and 8.3 rebounds. Uh, I will say, in the later months, though, he kind of did get passed by a little bit of players. I would say Cade and uh, Cade Cunningham and Jalen Green were the top performers post All Star break, but there was kind of already enough of like a a break 
that I don't think either of those two are going to end up winning it. Now, with Cade, dominant season for him. You know, on paper, you probably give it to him, but he averaged 17.4, you know, 5.5 rebounds and 5.6 assists. But you didn't see the major, major games until the end of the year. And that's going to get you uh, some probably second place and third place votes. But just due to the consistency you saw from the top two guys, I think that does ultimately make him a first team all NBA or all rookie selection, but not that guy. So that's kind of how I round out my top three. It gets very funky once you go beyond that. You have Franz Wagner, who averaged 15 uh, points per game. Herbert Jones was averaging about 10 points. Really good defensive specialist for the Pelicans. And then you talk about someone like Jalen Green, who was averaging a crap ton of points in the year. Just 30-piece after 30-piece. I think he's now probably a first-team selection. The expected group is Mobley, Barnes, Cunningham, Wagner, and then empty space with Jalen Green, Josh Giddy, and Herb Jones in that pack. I think Green is more likely in than Wagner. Now, that's probably foolish of me to say. Like, I'm not the one voting. I think if you're going just really basic, Wagner's punched in because everyone said he's been a phenomenal rookie all season and he's played all season. But... I think there's more of a gap um, that you'll find between, let's say, Jalen Green and the next guy and Wagner versus the next guy. I'd argue that Giddy's better, or he had a better season than Mo Wagner did anyways. But for Giddy, really good numbers, 12.5 points, 6, or excuse me, 7.8 rebounds, and 6.4 assists. Led rookies in assists, second to just Mobley and rebounding, and he was a hell of a player. Had this group of rookies not been just so well-rounded. I think he's clearly in that top discussion. Um, and how do he finish out the year? Maybe he's still easily a first-team all-rookie with these exact same numbers. I think it comes down to just recency bias, and that pushes Jalen Green ahead of him and potentially Wagner as well. So that's kind of my group on it. Should be a second-team all-rookie. If he's first-team, that is awesome. As for six-man of the year, this one is obvious you got Tyler Hero Cam Johnson and Kevin Love this is between Tyler Hero and Cam Johnson Johnson was an all-star anytime he played OKC just hitting three-pointer after three-pointer but Tyler Hero's averaging damn near 21 points per game I think that makes him that pick and then for coach of the year also another one that I think is easy Monty Williams Eric Spolstra and Taylor Jenkins might actually not be that easy <laughs> now that I now that I think about it because all three of them have done a hell of a job for Williams getting the Suns to a franchise 64 wins is big I think that positions him as that front runner Spolstra he's got a group kind of without that primary superstar just a lot of very good pieces uh, some G League gyms and they end up being number one in the east And then for the Grizzlies, just that major rise to the number two seed. I think you end up giving it to Monty Williams, though, just due to the significant play you saw from Phoenix. Last one is most improved player. This is one that I think the league has done a terrible job on for as long as I can remember it, man. And 
based on what we've seen in the playoffs, just the narrative has spread, and I think it's a lot more mainstream. But they had one of the worst draws on Most Improved Player a couple seasons ago. Christian Wood was basically trying out for teams. He had a very good time closing the year for the New Orleans Pelicans, ended his 10-day contract, and was a free agent. Joins the Detroit Pistons, and to get the final spot on the Pistons roster, which is one of the worst teams in the NBA. He had to beat out Joe Johnson, who just came off of being the MVP in the three-on-three, like big three league. Brian Scalabrini's in that league, man. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, Johnson was good, and I'd love to see him back, but you're you're not a, a team looking to contend. You don't need a 40-year-old Joe Johnson. He barely beat out Johnson. He's the last guy on the Pistons roster, and he rose to being easily a top three guy in that team, if not the best guy on that team. He was seventh in rookie of the year, or most improved player that season. Brandon Ingram ended up taking it in his rise with the New Orleans Pelicans. Don't get me wrong, Brandon Ingram had a hell of a year. That go around, I think it was, it must have been 1920 that this year... Yeah, yeah, it was the nineteen twenty season, but it's a good run for Ingram. Christian Wood should have been the obvious pick. If you're going from number 350, literally he was 350 in the NBA to a top 60 player, ESPN ranked him 55 in their rankings once he joined the Rockets, by the way. That's clearly better than the jump that Brandon Ingram made. He was the number two pick for a reason, man. Christian Wood did not get drafted, had his girlfriend break up with him that same day, and he just had to keep grinding for years on years. Dude was really close to going overseas, stuck it out in the G League as a star of the show, and now is making good money with the Rockets and has just had major, major games. Let's put it that way. That's a big one. This season... You get the announcement of the three finalists, and history continues to repeat itself. I need to get a freaking ballot, man, because I don't understand how the voters vote the way they do. Top three, Darius Garland, DeJounte Murray, and John Morant. All three of those guys made significant leaps. Do not get me wrong. But you're looking at three guys that have been just rising over time. For Garland and Morant, they were lottery picks for a reason. People expected them to have a high ceiling. DeJounte... It's a bit of a surprise, but he was good last year already. Makes that jump into an all-star. Morant and Garland are basically the same story. What about Jordan Poole, man? This is identical to the case we saw with Christian Wood. It's just instead of being a front-court figure, now you're talking about a backcourt figure. Jordan Poole was playing in the G League last year. 28th pick three seasons ago. And with Michigan... He had a a couple good games, like they got to the national championship, but I mean, he wasn't expected to be anything crazy. You know, when he got picked 28th, it was not seen as like a a value pick. He wasn't supposed to be like a mid first round or anything, but the Warriors picked him up and he was kind of just unproductive. Like you didn't see much action from him his first I'd say two seasons, like rookie campaign, he was a solid bench figure, uh, and last year, you know, he did kind of tick it up a couple notches, but 
he was still a G League guy. This was almost like Alexei Pokashevsky. If I have to make an example, Poku was playing in the G League last year. Or let's say, hell, let's say Moses Brown is the example because he ended up playing really good to close out uh, last season with the Thunder. Moses Brown was insane in the G League bubble. He was a first team selection. I'd say he was top three in MVP voting. And he was getting just double doubles every single game. Monstrous. Ends up signing with the Thunder. And he closes a year averaging about eight and eight. That's really good production from him. But then let's imagine that now you're looking at Moses Brown with the Cleveland Cavaliers averaging like 17 points and 11 rebounds. Now he's a top 10 center in the NBA. He's 7'2", and he's a nightmare for everybody. He's jumping out the damn gym. That's basically the jump we saw from Jordan Poole. Just instead of being in a blue and a Thunder jersey, he's in a Santa Cruz Warriors jersey and a Golden State Warriors jersey. Averaged 12 points as a sophomore last year, but in the bubble, he broke out. Played 11 games, averaged 22 points per game, and shot 32% from distance. This year, you got Clay out, Curry's dealing with injuries. He averages 19 points per game, shooting 36% from three, and now in the playoffs, he's setting records out here, man. It's not a playoff award, and him having two ridiculous games does not change the stance on it. The voters do not take into account G League to NBA jumps. It's only lottery picks turned into all-stars, really. And that's really stupid. That doesn't indicate who made the biggest jump. Clearly, a couple years ago, Christian Wood with the Pistons was that guy. And I think he might have gotten like one first place vote. Whoever that was, thank you. This year, Jordan Poole, I would imagine had a little bit more traction, but he's been under the radar as a candidate until like two weeks ago, which is very, very silly to me. If you're playing in the G League, fighting for a roster spot the year before, and now you're leading an NBA team, you instantly are number one on my board. You're getting the first place vote. Sorry, John Morant's probably winning this thing, but John Morant didn't make that type of leap. He was the number two pick in the draft class, and He was dominant with the Grizzlies in his rookie campaign. It's not close. It wasn't close with the Ingram situation either. I'm really tired of it. You know, this is one of those deals where it's been on my mind literally since the Christian Wood scenario happened. We just need another case. And this is one where I think the voters are finally going to get it through their heads because they didn't get through it on the Wood one. No one talked about it. This time, You've really seen that evolution of media. The players are getting more involved and everyone's just throwing down this speech of Jordan Poole should have been at least a finalist. I don't know who that next G League gym is going to be, but for the next one, I think this helps really set down those standards. And for those people with the ballots, I think they should have at least a bit more uh, reason when it comes to going after maybe some of those less big names, you know, guys like Poole, guys like Christian Wood, Duncan Robinson, for example, just that echelon of players. But that's going to do it for my little rant on most improved player. It's just how it goes. Um, (laughs) But I really do have a problem with it. Like they need to fix it. We'll see who ends up winning. I think it's going to be John Morant, probably by a landslide. And that's going to be that. 
we'll see how that goes. And we'll see if the Grizzlies uh, defeat the Timberwolves. I said it off the air. It's not on record, but I said before the series, I like the Timberwolves a little bit. You know, you got Carl Anthony Towns. Edwards was looking nice. I still think that the Grizzlies are probably going to win off of uh, depth and everything, but it's a nightmare matchup for a 2-7. And for the Nets Celtics series, I don't know if there's a better 2-7 that you'll find in a very long time amazing slate of playoff games i'll be doing coverage on that and i'll be doing some coverage on sam presti's press conference in the next episode i'll have a lot loaded up for that one and it might even have to be broken up into two parts because there is so much material that needs to be really broken down and i want to do it for you guys really appreciate you guys sticking this one out though bit of a longer episode let me know if you like that format you guys can tell me on my personal Twitter at Ben Kreider or at the pod's Twitter at Thunderstick Pod. Other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.